And so we are um, here. It's the second full day of practice, but this is actually our third day here. So in honor of three days, here's a reading from Hafiz called For Three Days. Hafiz is a Persian poet. I love Hafiz. He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. <laughs> that would do. <laughs> and that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and a chamber pot. No reading, no writing. That would be cheating. Let's aim high for the 360 degree detox. Although this sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried in here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried in here. Again, it's pointing back, um, beautiful poem pointing that... um, It's in here, not outside of us. This is a revolutionary discovery that is inside us. And in this practice, that the these teachings of the foundations of mindfulness to penetrate into reality, to penetrate into this discovery, it's just looking within. Very grateful. Anna mentioned uh, yesterday, very briefly, uh, about uh, the first few days of retreat is like being in a swamp. And I, that's really the, the beautiful descriptive word. And actually, um, being so hot it was, so it wasn't, we didn't have the humidity of a swamp, but we were being cooked and baked here too. Not only physically, but I trust also mentally, emotionally. And whether this is your first retreat or your 50th, going through the swamp is very normal. And so it's really helpful to just normalize and validate um, for many people's experience. I'm not going to say 100%, but for many of us, the first few days of retreat are very challenging tired, restless, so forth. I sometimes think in a fantasy, wouldn't it be nice on a longer retreat that for the first three days we just have beds by our zafus and we just sleep for the first three days <laughs> and then we'll wake up and find out what's going on. That'd be kind of cool, meditation hall filled with beds and zafus. But this being in a swamp like is part of our process of being cooked, just like when you forge steel in the fire, it burns away the impurities. And things are heating up because we've taken away intentionally with all of us all these diversions that we do in our lives talking, television, the internet, books, writing, so forth. Some ways it feels like we enter into a hall of mirrors and starring me, myself, and I, no matter where it is that I turn. Here I am. And it's amazing, even within the me, myself, and I, we can go on diversions. I remember a friend of mine going on a three-month retreat, and he said, yeah, it was like a week or two. All I was doing was playing the Beatles' White Album inside my mind. (laughs) 
Come back to the breath, dear prudence. Come back. So even when we take everything away, the mind can fabricate and create on and on and on. I love what Hafiz says about this. A sitting is not recommended for those that are sedated. And there was a part of my life, not now, now I am a householder, but there was a part of my life when I lived in a Theravadan Buddhist monastery for eight and a half years. And um, actually, being in a monastery is, is also like living there is like getting cooked. And uh, being in Spirit Rock is getting cooked. And, you know, most of these monasteries and meditation centers, you know, it's kind of pastoral. looks really nice. You might even see deer running by and hear Spirit Rock, the roosters, uh, not the roosters, the, <laughs> the uh, turkeys, and just the pastoral settings. But I used to have this um, joke inside myself um, that, like, living in the monastery was like living inside of a shit accelerator. Because it was just, just everything, like, you know, like, like, who took my sandals? I left them at this door, and now I find them at another door. So it wasn't like blatant, just things happening. Who took my toothpaste? So the monastery is like a, or in the, being here at the rock doing time, um, <laughs> we're, we're cooking. There's a certain sense of like, why isn't this person... Why are they walking so slow up or down the stairs? Or why, why is... I want to get my dishes washed. And Anyways, sometimes we call it the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> and of course, it's opposite. We fall in love. We never had a conversation with this person, but we're already having children with them. <laughs> and so the mind is going. Going a lot. Bhante Gunaratana, Selenese Buddhist monk, wrote a beautiful book called Mindfulness in Plain English. He says that somewhere in this process of mindfulness meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) That your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. But no problem. I love that he says that. Not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. Perhaps you just never noticed. Not a problem. So yes, even in these beautiful pastoral environments, and we have so much support uh, for us to do our practice, we nevertheless um, are coming up against this me, myself, and I, and this Hall of Mirrors. To purify our mind and heart is of the noblest of works, sometimes the most challenging of works. So, reference in the suttas, perhaps it's easier at times to almost conquer a thousand soldiers in battle single handedly than to conquer one's heart and mind. In the sense that this is the formidable work of facing ourselves with honesty, with compassion with clarity. And when we think about this noble journey, there may come a time in our lives where we realize what else is there really to do anyways? What else is there really to do? Franz Kafka has some type of a quote that says, you know, you have suffering and you could deal with it or not, but if you don't deal with it, you get two sufferings. 
So there's kind of an efficiency, perhaps, to turn into this pain, rather the, the pain of avoiding the pain, then we get two pains. Mm-hmm. Not so easy. Yet some of these uh, teachers, they talk about third Zen patriarch says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. <laughs> okay, boom. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. Do not search for truth, only cease to cherish opinions. The great way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Easy for him to say. It's very beautiful teaching, so. Achan Shah speaks about the Thai forest master. Do everything with a mind that lets go and don't expect any praise or reward. He goes on to say, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. Letting go is not easy. Perhaps the word that resonates with me is this quality of letting be. Acknowledging things to run their course. But these are very powerful teachings. The great way for those that have no preferences, letting go. We know that in between the mindfulness of breathing and now being introduced to some of the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that in between these spaces, of course, there's many experiences that are going on in our heart. There's memories, emotions, thoughts, future, past, remorse, frustration, anger, sadness, daydreaming. We can say just figuratively the 10,000 joys and sorrows. A little confused here. There we go. So we're learning to practice to meet them all. And I loved um, what Anna was saying just a little bit ago about this. Um, actually, I love the word mindfulness of the last resort. <laughs> I actually hadn't heard that before. And, but there, there comes a time where nothing else is working and we decide to turn in. And it actually reminds me of a metaphor when I was 16 years old, well, actually an experience when I was 16 years old, that um, I grew up outside of the Boston area, and in the wintertime, I'd be driving a car, just got my license, and whenever I'd get in a skid, I would start skidding out, it would scare the hell out of me, and I'm just turning away from the skid. And the more that I turned away, the more I skidded out. I remember telling my father one day, about this. He said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. And when I heard that, I thought that was crazy. It felt counterintuitive. Are you kidding? Turning into the place that I'm scared of? I didn't believe it. So I kept on trying to turn away, and I kept on skidding out. And there came a time, mindfulness of the last resort. As a last resort. As a last resort. <laughs> that I turned my wills into it, even though it scared me, even though it felt counterintuitive. 
And I couldn't believe what happened because I could sense within the car immediately that my car began to move towards some stabilization. And so it might be at times that it feels not natural or counterintuitive to turn into these places that are difficult. But we may discover as a last resort of mindfulness. Um, what's here? So Dana Falls, she writes in this poem called Allow that there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt or try to contain a tornado. Dam a stream and it'll create a new channel. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness fills your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And in the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. Resist and the tides will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. This path of awakening, of the heart of wisdom, reveals at times where we are stuck, the deep embedded patterns that we've played out again and again in our hearts. So another just inspirational reading from Dana Falls called Nothing More is Needed. She says that inside the hot, hard knot of raw sensation here, inside the heart of fear and pain, I find the flame of truth. My path is through diving right into whatever past conditioning bids me hide or push aside. And when I soften, open, accept, and receive... The flow of energy is immediate. Nothing more is needed to awaken completely than the intimate experience of now, being here. So also it's very important to name that in this path of awakening, the path of the heart, of wisdom, that there's road markers along the way that are so common, so predictable, they're explained within the different uh, meditation texts. If you meditate, you will from time to time, particularly early on, come up against some obstacles, challenges, sometimes known as the hindrances. And I think it's very wonderful to just really uh, know just how predictable, how common these challenges are. And so it's almost uh, an equation that if you indeed begin a meditation practice, you will at times experience wanting, sense desire. You will at other times feel its opposite of anger and aversion. It's just part of what happens when we practice. At times you'll feel restless, bored, you'll be sleepy. At other times you'll be filled with doubt. Will this really even do something for me? So I want to just name and acknowledge these obstacles or challenges that come up in our practice and that they are so 
normal. But these, how, these hindrances can be worked with because they, we speak of them as hindrances because they're impediments. They, we can get consumed by them. In some sense, we can consider that they feed our neurotic or narcissistic tendencies that's fueled by our grasping, our aversion, our unawareness. It is said in the Dharma that there's three root causes to suffering, to dukkha, to pain. The Buddha spoke about that there's no fire hotter than this wanting or grasping. There's no ice colder than hatred or aversion. There's no fog thicker than unawareness. We can't see clearly. And perhaps this not seeing clearly is really the deepest of the foundations of the impediments, this unawareness. This not seeing clearly and from that place of not seeing clearly gives rise to the sense of wanting, aversion, and so forth. My old meditation teacher, Tampu Lucero, used to say that midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is unawareness. Darkest of all is unawareness. So let's just dive a little bit deeper into some of these hindrances, just so we can flush them out just a little bit. So sense desire. It's this feeling of, I want it. Ever-seeking delight, now here and now there can be compelling, can even be intoxicating, the sense of, I want. And it's very powerful while we're sitting in our practice to recognize when we're in that state. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about, I want to get a new Prius, I want to get a new house, I want to get uh, new shoes. And like the mind just is just entertaining itself, wanting this and wanting that, but also to begin to bring awareness. What is actually the state of the mind when one is in a place of this real wanting? And sometimes the heat turns up, it's a boil of wanting. Sometimes it's a simmer in in between. Scale of one to ten, if you will. But notice, I think, it's very powerful in our practice if we all of a sudden become aware, oh, here's wanting. And then to bring awareness. What does this look like? Just like, I know, so what is that sensation of of Discomfort, actually, what's the experience of it? So I bring awareness to it, and it's very different. One moment, I'm lost in the wanting, now becoming aware, and now taking interest and investigation. This is one of the factors of awakening, and beginning to look more closely into it. What's in here? Very different experience. The same type of uh, way of working with it applies to any of these hindrances. So there's the wanting, there's the inversion, the anger. I don't want it. And the feeling, what's it feel like in the body? Stuck, frozen, rigid, tight. There's resistance. What is the quality of the mind in the body when we're experiencing this not wanting, this anger, this aversion? I think many of us would discover there's a certain unsettledness, a certain um, type of dissatisfactoriness, just like when we examine, of course, the state of our heart and body when we're in a place of wanting. Is it feeling stable or steady, or is it kind of unsatisfactory, uncomfortable? It's not at ease. 
So this awareness again, recognizing, oh, here's anger, here's aversion. One moment I'm wrapped in it, consumed with my anger. The next moment I'm becoming aware, the factor of awakening mindfulness and beginning to investigate, oh, look at this, this anger here. What's here? Feeling it into the body, acknowledging what's present. Now, the thing that arises at times is restlessness. How many times have we, maybe early on in our practice, sat in the meditation hall and wondered, will I be the first person in the meditation hall to die of restlessness? When is he going to ring the bell? <laughs> I'm sure the battery of the clock must have went there. Maybe the meditation teacher's sleeping. I don't know. Like, when is this bell going to ring? I'm gonna... It's like the pacing tiger. It's not comfortable. Not comfortable boring, whatever's there. So this antidote, again, is awareness. All of a sudden, I become aware. Oh, I'm restless. Oh, one moment prior, with that unawareness, I'm reacting. I'm that pacing tiger going back and forth and crawling out of my skin. And the next moment, I'm becoming aware. Oh, crawling out of my skin. Let me have some interest here and investigate this. Very powerful shifting that can happen. And of course, sometimes we have to even do, um, with restless energy, sometimes going even on a brisk walk back and forth. How, how do we harness and work with this energy of restlessness? So we begin to engage with it. The fact that we're beginning to engage with it with awareness is very different than being unaware and totally lost in its reactions. Sleepiness. Some old archaic words I just love, sloth and torpor. (laughs) (laughs) Often we think about that there's um, three reasons. Number one, you're tired. And I think so many of us that are living in very busy lives, we've lost touch with our own circadian and biorhythms. And when we finally sit down and begin a practice, we're falling asleep. And if this is happening a lot, like, hello, maybe you're tired. That's why I was saying, you know, maybe we should put the, the bed by the Zafu for the first three days and sleep about 20 hours a day. I think for many of us, we're exhausted. And when we come in to sit, we're coming to a screeching halt. And then we're supposed to just be sitting here, fully awake and comfortable. <laughs> and so it, you may have noticed in these last couple of days that tiredness, the fatigue. So many of us are very tired. We're doing a lot. Very novel. What would it be like if we actually did less? That's almost un-American to say that. But we could use these day timers. We could be clever with them. We could actually write in them, do nothing. Because it's all about doing something, but we can write, do nothing. Well, it says it on my thing. Get to sit and stop. So tiredness is one thing that I think many of us bring in. And of course, there could be times where there's a sense of... Um, Another aspect of that there's some resistance. I, I, I don't want to be here. This doesn't feel good to me. I remember uh, last May, we had a, a cancer scare in my family with my older son of him possibly having lymphoma. Fortunately, he had mono. I never thought I'd be so happy about mono. <laughs> and, uh, but there was a time when that was happening, and I was actually teaching a meditation retreat while this was happening, And every moment that seemed of my waking consciousness was about all that could happen to him. I was scared, I was worried, I was consumed. And I noticed this overwhelming feeling that I just wanted to go to sleep. 
I didn't want to feel it. It was amazing. And I never, oh, wow. I, I mean, I saw it so clearly, the sense of, I don't want to be here. And um, so sometimes, you know, things are coming up and it's just painful. We want to kind of turn away from them, sleeping, watching television, do anything but being inside our own skin, flesh, and bones. And of course, another reason is just, you know, the difficulties and challenges that are related to the first one about our working so much, not living such a balanced life. So again, some of the antidotes, if you will, is when we become aware, we can begin to work with it. And of course, now that I'm aware that I've been nodding off, I can open my eyes. I can maybe even elect to stand up. And I noticed yesterday in the hall, a few people beginning to stand up um, with their practice, which is a, a very viable way of working with it. Sometimes um, conjuring up the, the mindfulness of impermanence. I'm sitting at the edge of a 5,000-foot cliff in one moment, boom, or be living on, next to a tiger trail. I mean, there's all these little tricks. I remember one of my teachers, he used to meditate holding a candle in each hand burning. <laughs> or he'd sit on a, on a chair, but he'd sit the opposite way. Rather than his back leaning up against a chair, he was the opposite, so that he fell backwards, he'd fall on the floor. These are these macho monk stories. And um, I also think if you're really tired, and no matter what you do, you keep on falling off, probably it's better to sleep and be happy. And then wake up and do the practice. There's actually a beautiful teaching story of uh, these two younger monks, and one of them fell asleep meditating. The other monk was, oh, I'm going to rat on him, and went to tell the old monk about what was going on. And the old monk said to, the, to that monk, go get a blanket and put it on him. Let him rest. So there's times where the, some of the greatest things that we can do in the spirit of compassion for ourselves is to care for this body. You look at that Zafu, I want to get enlightened, but deeper inside, I want to put my head on it. And so we, we want to, I mean, we, we definitely are wanting to work to awaken, but also this body needs its care. And particularly as we're aging, we may, you know, we don't have this 20-year-old body that we once had. We don't have that body. And how can I, as part of my practice, hold, meet myself with great compassion as I work with this um, with any of these, actually, with, with our aging, how our aging affects any of these challenges that arise within us. So the last one, of course, is doubt. Will this help? I'm not getting anywhere. Yeah, this whole thing about mindfulness is a last resort, but I don't know. And so doubt is something that is very important that we also begin to recognize, because the moment that we actually recognize, oh, Ah, there's doubt. It, that, it's even written about in the meditation manuals. You will experience doubt. Your teachers are saying you will experience doubt, and wow, I am experiencing doubt. And it's a very different moment when we awaken and recognize where it is that we are prior to the moment of unawareness, where we're just lost, and no, nothing will do anything to me, and oh, and, and now, I, oh, here's doubt. This is something that arises. Let me bring awareness to this acknowledgement of doubt, and perhaps sometimes we can draw upon the inspiration of the three gems of the awakened one, the teachings, the community. There's different ways that we can begin to help foster that sense of inspiration. But it's so powerful to know that doubt is here. So my time is running. 
But I want to just name some other challenges that I trust that we work with. Wandering mind. Yes. There's a beautiful quote from a, a Christian mystic named St. Francis de Sales. It was a meditator. He was a meditator. And he says that if your mind wanders, bring it back quite gently. And if you did nothing for the whole of your hour, but bring it back every time it went off, which seemed like every other moment, your hour would still be well employed. It's a very beautiful way of holding the practice. And this is a manual labor practice. You you go to the gym and you work out with weights and it's through repetition that muscle mass is gained. The mind goes off, we're bringing it back. The mind goes off, we're bringing it back. This is the repetition of helping to build stability, helping to collect the mind to help it develop settledness. But also I want to say that there's things we can learn about ourselves when our mind wanders. If it's wandering off to some difficult issue and all of a sudden I come back and I'm realizing, wow, I I really need to address certain things in my life. That's important information. Also it might begin to reveal how our mind and body is connected. I've been lost off in this issue and I come back, my jaw is as tight as a vice grip. My belly is in knots. My shoulders are tight. So we begin to get revealed because we're coming back and becoming fresh again. We see where it is that we've been and this begins to give us information. Other challenges, of course, fear, anxiety. Um, It's probably even more expenditure, but I believe it's like about a $15 billion budget on the USA alone on national security. Fear and anxiety. It's huge. And of course, feelings of resentment, grudges, ill will. These are also challenges that we need to work with in our lives to heal our hearts. Practices of loving kindness. So there's many different challenges that arise, and we're trying to meet them with awareness. And one of the things that I want to just really point to, this practice of mindfulness, awareness, is that when we're unmindful, this is getting into a little bit of mindfulness-based stress reduction, when we are unaware, we're reactive. We're reacting in old habitual patterns, ways, and it's very different. When we become mindful, we can then learn to mindfully respond to the situation. It's a much more constructive way of dealing with these challenges when we're responding mindfully than when we are reacting unmindfully. And so we're working with these challenges that arise, becoming aware of them and responding to them in hopefully much more constructive ways. So I'm going to end now because it's our time, but I'll end with a very simple and beautiful wisdom teaching from Dr. Seuss from the places you'll go. So I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you'll play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not, alone you will be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a very good chance you'll meet some things that scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road, hither and yon, that can scare you so much you won't want to go on. But on you will go, though the weather be foul. On you will go, though the hack and cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. On and on you hike. And I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. 
You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure where you step, and step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act, and just never forget to be dexterous and deft, and never mix up your right foot with your left. Thank you. I love Dr. Seuss.